Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We've been talking about the kingdom of heaven through the parables of Matthew 13. And uh, the reason that I decided to do it was because as I read it, I realized that part of the reason God, that Jesus was speaking in parables was because he really wanted to get their attention. And he wanted to challenge some of the conceptions they had about what the kingdom of heaven was. And he knew that by sharing parables and stories, he would make them think. He would be able to provoke them, be a little provocative, make them think about what he's sharing. So he shares these sort of normal situations, but then he shares these weird sort of turns about them. Um, He shares about weed and wheat and then shares about how you shouldn't pull up the weeds. Or he shares about a sower who just kind of sows everywhere. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, there's always just these little things that don't quite fit because he wants us to think about them. And the reason I started sharing this is because I realized that a lot of the conceptions that we had about the kingdom of heaven were wrong, just as they were wrong for the Israelites, for the early church. And so I think it's good for us to revisit these. So I hope it's been encouraging to you guys. I know it has been to me. And uh, tonight, we're actually on the last two parables um, uh, of Matthew 13. There are other parables about the kingdom of heaven. I think maybe at some point we'll come back to some of those. But for now, I think we're going to wrap up with these tonight. And then we're going to take a different tack over the next few weeks. We actually have two parables tonight. One of them is actually so short, it's just a sentence long, it's easy to miss. Um, And that's not the first one we're going to do. The first one we're going to do is a few verses long. The first one is very similar. It's going to sound like we've heard it before. Let me just read it to you. I don't have the text on the screen tonight, but it's Matthew 13, 47 through 50. You're welcome to pull it up or just listen. Um, if If you just listen, you'll be just like all the people that Jesus was talking to at that time, which, by the way, is only 12 people. Remember, at this point, he's gone inside the house. You've got the 12 apostles. There may actually be a few more, some of the... The other people that followed him everywhere were there. Maybe Mary was there. Maybe Martha was there. We don't know. But, but kind of just a core group of people were there at this point. And he says this, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I know some pastors like a good old weeping and gnashing of teeth parable. I'm not particularly fond of them myself. But it's interesting. I think there's something really important here. And I think, among other things, it ends up being a pretty good review of the parables that we've looked at. It may not look that way at first, but we're going to walk through it and you'll see the review. Before we do, though, Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll jump in and, and kind of see where we're going with these last two parables. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. We thank you so much for preserving for thousands of years, Lord, your parables, your, your sermons, your messages, your teachings, Lord, that we still have them today, and that you've preserved them through people who literally opponents, people who wanted to destroy the Bible, Lord. You've preserved them through apathy. You've preserved them through... Uh, just the, the natural decay of things, Lord, that we actually have access, so much access, so much access to your scripture, so much access to the teachings of Jesus. We forget what a miracle that is. And yet we're grateful, we're thankful for it. And uh, pray tonight 
that you would speak to us, that you would just continue to encourage our hearts. You would continue to open our eyes, Lord. We come to you as people who want to hear. We come to you with open hearts and open mouths and ask you to fill us. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. So the first thing is, and this is, again, we're going to use this by way of review of some of the other parables we've seen. You may notice right off the bat, this has some similarities to the weeds and the wheat parable, right? You got good fish, you got bad fish. And at the end of the time is when the harvesters are going to come separate those out. Same with the fish. At the end of time, the angels are going to come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing blazing furnace. It's interesting that Jesus kind of merges the explanation in the parable all at one point. Do you notice that? He's got this metaphor going, and then he kind of drops it at the end and just starts talking about angels. (laughs) So I think it's partly because he's talking to the apostles, and I think it shows us what he wants to be clear about here at the end. And it may not sound like the most encouraging thing to be clear about at the end, but let me tell you why I think it is for them. And let's do that by way of review here a little bit. First of all, who remembers what the very first, and, and if someone on Zoom wants to unmute themselves to answer this, you're welcome to. Anybody here in this room is welcome to answer it. What was the first lesson? It actually didn't come from a parable. It kind of just came from the gospel of Matthew as a whole and who Matthew is. What was the first lesson we learned about the kingdom of heaven? Kingdom of heaven is for everyone. Yes, it's for everyone. That Everyone is welcome. We actually see that in this parable. The way this parable starts, it says that, that there was a man who, who, that a net was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And the kingdom of heaven is like that. Now, this is an inter- interesting point. It appears that this is, there's two kinds of nets that the fishermen in Jesus' time would use. And one was called a casting net. And this is what the apostles, like when he went and said, follow me, or, or when he goes out and he has them catch a bunch of fish, a lot of times this is what they're using as a casting net. So they, they throw the net in, and the plan is only to catch the fish that are right around them. And so they, they cast it, just like you might cast a line, and they catch a few fish and they pull them in. That's a casting net. But there was also something called a dragnet, which is more than just an old radio show, an old TV show. Uh, but a dragnet is a net that you actually lower into the lake and it drags along the bottom, hence the name, drags along the bottom, you pull it forward, and along the way, it just picks up everything. So uh, boots and garbage and whatever junk is on the bottom, as well as fish of all kinds. It's not discriminating. The dragnet just grabs everything. And that's what he's talking about in this parable when he says it's a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. So they, they drag it across, and when it can't hold any more, they pull it up on the shore. But it's got all kinds of fish, and it's very indiscriminate. And this is how we, what we've seen, that the kingdom of heaven, it welcomes everybody. It's interesting, one of the things we didn't talk about in, the, uh, in that first parable about the sower um, that we did talk about, that one of our, one thing we didn't talk about, but one of our focus groups talked about, which was, I thought, impressive and a good point, was that it, one of the weird things about the parable of the sower, and remember, that's the guy who sows, and then some falls on rocky ground, some falls in thorns, some falls on good soil, some falls on, on um, good soil, but doesn't go deep. And what somebody brought up is, that's a really weird way to farm. Wouldn't you want to sow all your seed in one place? <laughs> where, where it's going to grow, just find the good soil and plant there. Why are you even sowing seed that's going all these other places? And they pointed out that it does tell us that, again, God sows the message, the gospel, everywhere. And he doesn't decide ahead of time, well, they're, they're here and they're not. He just welcomes everybody. And so the, the dragnet's the same way. It's the same picture of everybody is welcome, right? Um, the gospel's going out into the world, much as the sower is sowing everywhere, And the gospel is intended for everyone. 
and everyone is welcome, okay? But then we get the same thing that we saw uh, of, the, of the good fish, the good wheat, the bad seed. We see the good fish and the bad fish. We go back to the sower. In that first parable, we learned something else. What did we learn about the parable of the sower and the rocky soil and the good soil and the thorny soil? What was our second point that we learned about the kingdom of heaven? Not everybody wants it. Even though everyone's welcome, not everybody wants it. Now that isn't summarized directly here in this parable, but in its similarity to the next parable, I think it's there. And here's why I say that. We learned from that first parable, some people close their ears. They don't want to hear it. Some people, they want to hear it, but they don't want to let go of the, the, the things that they're really counting on for life. They're afraid that if I let go of these things, of my riches, of other things, then I'll lose life. And God is saying, no, you got to let that go so that you can find that life is in the gospel. Um, and some people, they hear it and they take it in and it's everything. So some people, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen. They close their ears. Not everybody wants it. And although that's not summarized in this parable, one thing we pointed out in the distinction between the weeds and the wheat is that's the distinction. If everybody's welcome, it's not about that some is good and some is bad. It's not that the good fish are the good people and the bad fish are the bad people. Because the gospel is a cure for all of us who are bad, which is all of us. <laughs> the distinction between the good fish and the bad fish are those who want to be there and those who don't want to be there. The distinction between the weeds and the wheat, as we talked about in that second parable, are those who want to be part of the kingdom and those who don't want to be part of the kingdom. And you might ask yourself, why on earth would anybody say no? If everybody's welcome, why does anybody say no to the kingdom? And I think it's interesting, and I know that out there and in here and out there in Zoom, I know that there's a lot of different positions and opinions on vaccines and masks and medicine and doctors and illnesses, and that's okay. I'm not going to tell you which one you should believe right now. You'll hear in what I'm about to say where I'm at, but I hope you'll hear a lot more than that. Because one of the things I want you to see is that we live in a time where in the context we might be able to grasp why people would say no to the kingdom. Because the reality is this. What scripture teaches us is that there's a deadly disease. And this deadly disease is called sin. And what it teaches us is that it has a 100% mortality rate. In fact, we know that life has a 100% mortality rate. That's one thing we know. And so there's this deadly disease called sin, which leads to this 100% mortality rate. And Jesus tells us the gospel is the cure. He tells us that he's provided life for us, that, that, um, that those who trust in him will never die, but live forever. And you think, why would anybody turn that down? And the truth is that some will refuse the cure because they deny the disease, because the cost doesn't seem worth the benefit, because they don't understand what the benefit truly is. It's easy, I think, for us to understand that in this context today. And that's why I mentioned vaccines and masks. I'm not saying who's right, but think about this for a moment. I can think of a lot of instances, not just over the pandemic, but over the course of my life, where people have refused medical treatment. I'll give you a couple of my own example. So number one, just a, a, not that long ago, I had a dog who with medical treatment could have lived. And I refused the treatment. Because I didn't think he'd live long enough to make it worth the cost. But I did choose not to take it. It was there, and I chose not to take it. And instead, I let my dog die, helped him die peacefully. Some of you are familiar with this sad reality of pet ownership. I right now struggle from something called post-COVID fatigue. And I've had a lot of people, and I appreciate all of them, give me suggestions about how to get over it. 
And some of them I have just not even bothered to look into. And you might say, why not? If you could get help, why wouldn't you do it? And I could be right or I could be wrong, but I've decided as I've looked at it that not all cures and not all possibilities are equally valid and I can't afford to chase around after hopes that aren't going to lead anywhere, in my opinion. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm just explaining why I would turn something down that you think of as a cure because I'm not convinced it is. And we know there are people out there who refuse to get vaccine, vaccinated because they feel the same way. They don't trust it. They don't believe that it will provide for them the answer to the problem that's out there. Or for some people, they deny the reality of the disease. Not everybody does. Very few, I think. But some do. And as somebody who believes in the vaccine, it's sometimes hard for me to understand why somebody would do that. Now, I'm not sharing all this because I want you to take a particular position one way or the other on, on the medical approach. The reason I share all this is because I think all of it, there's probably something in there you can relate to where you think something would help and someone is refusing it. And I want you to realize that what I believe and what I understand is that the kingdom of heaven is the cure for everything. That the gospel is the cure for the 100% mortality rate. And yet, some people will refuse it because they don't believe the disease is real. They don't believe sin is real. Some people will refuse it because they, they believe the cost is too high. They may not understand how freely it's offered to them. Some people refuse it because they just don't, they don't believe in it. They don't think that's the answer. They're looking for something else that will bring them salvation. And I think that's the reality, is that people who refuse the kingdom of heaven, it's not usually because everything is great. They know the system is broken. They know the world is flawed. They know their life is not perfect but they're hoping that something else will provide the answer. And for whatever reason, they've lost hope. They've lost confidence in Jesus being it. And so it is true that some will want it and some won't. And this is why you have good fish and bad fish. And this is why you have weeds among the wheat. Now, the third parable referring to the weeds and the wheat was what? Weeding is not your job. See, this is important because if I've decided there's some people that aren't in the kingdom of heaven, if I just know that that's true because some people don't want it, what God rushes in to remind us is it's not my job to identify who those people are and keep them out. Everyone is welcome. We're not to gatekeep those people. Now, we know that they're there. There are bad fish. There are good fish. There are wheat and there is weeds. But it's not our job to pre-select who goes in the net. It's not a casting net. It's a drag net. The final judgment is not ours. Which comes to the point that Jesus does make in this parable. But before we get there, let me summarize the next two parables because he doesn't do that here and I want to make sure we don't forget them. So then we talked about the parable of the mustard seed and what did we learn there? Who remembers? God delights in working through the small and even the despised. And that's important because if we gatekeep, we might keep out the people we think are too small or too despised, right? If we're weeding, we might be weeding out the very mustard plant that God wants to work through. And so God delights in working through the small and the despised. And then we talked about the parable of the pearl of great price or the parable of the yeast. And I, uh, we talked about two possibilities, the traditional view 
is a, is a reasonable view, and it's a, it's a true view. I'm just not sure it's what the parable means, but the traditional view is that the kingdom of heaven is the per, peril, pearl of great... Parable in pearl, it's throwing me off here. Kingdom of heaven is the pearl of great price, and we are to give everything, or it's worth, it's worth giving everything to receive. What's interesting about that is that Jesus has been teaching all along that it isn't about, you don't buy the pearl of great price. You don't buy the kingdom of heaven. And so I posited that perhaps the radical notion he really was sharing with the apostles was something else. And what was that? What was the parable of the pearl of great price about? That I'm the pearl. That you're the pearl. And that was where we came with the, the last lesson that we learned last week is that the king thinks you're worth everything. <laughs> the king thinks you're worth everything. Um, interestingly enough, we didn't have our microphone last week for Facebook, and I noticed that that last word got lost every time I said it, because I said it so softly and dramatically that all you heard on the podcast was, the king thinks you're worth, which is really <laughs> an unfair teaser. Um, so I did not mean it to be that way. But the truth is, the king thinks you're worth everything. <laughs> I think that's really important. Because what we learn in that is that the solution... This, this cure that's being offered didn't come free of cost. It just came free of your cost. It came at a really high price. And like the mustard seed, it came in a really small and quiet way. One th reason I think people sometimes refuse the kingdom of heaven is it seems small. It came through a man, another birth, and another death. Out of all the millions and billions of births and deaths that have occurred on our planet, we believe the kingdom of heaven came through another birth and another death, through a quiet man, not, not, a, not a man with earthly power, not a man who is king of anything on this earth, but we believe he's king of the kingdom of heaven and that God paid this cost because of our great love for us. Okay, that's our summary, that's our review, but back to the parable. Here's the thing, this parable does have some of those elements in it. It reminds us that everyone is welcome. The dragnet pulls it all in. It reminds us that not everybody wants it. There's going to be good fish and bad fish. But the point of this parable is one which has not been emphasized in any of the other parables. In fact, the reason I think it's here and that it's different from the weeds and the wheat parable is what you remember is in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, Jesus does not emphasize the judgment at the end. In the parable itself, what's emphasized is that you should not do the weeding. When the apostles ask him what the parable means, he emphasizes the judgment at the end, but not to the crowd. To the crowd, he emphasizes that you should not weed. This parable, within the parable itself, he jumps out of the parable, leaves aside the metaphor, and makes it clear that the emphasis of this parable is not that it's not your job to take out the bad fish. The emphasis of this parable is that God will do it, and God will judge. And here's what's weird about that. We don't like that message. <laughs> I think for a lot of us, that's a really uncomfortable message. And for us, it feels like it's at odds with everything we've just been hearing, how valuable we are, how precious we are, how merciful God is, how gracious he is. And we hear this parable and we think, gosh, why? Why did he have to bring this up? And the question is, why did he bring it up? And I think the surprising answer is, for the apostles, this is a comfort to them. And let me see if I can help you understand why that might be. Because it comes from thinking deeply about these parables, which is what you're supposed to do with parables, right? Think about the messages that we've received so far 
And I want you to recognize that they're a double-edged sword too. And one of you in our Zoom conversation, a few of you brought this up during the weeding question. It's a little bit of a double-edged sword because here's the thing. What the fish in the net and the weeds and the wheat in the field remind us is that evil and good coexist in this earth. That there's evil and there's good and they're together. And when we give the message that God thinks you're all precious, we love that when we remember it's about us. And so we should. And when we hear the message that it's not our job to weed, we love that when we think about the people that we have seen who have been unfairly, unjustly left out. When we think of the oppression that they felt and the injustice that they've been given, then we recognize that as we should. And we say, what a beautiful thing it is that we all have access to the king of the universe. And that is 100% true. That is not untrue. But if you keep thinking deeply about it, there's a troubling question that comes up next. It's all well and good to say, hey, it's good that all are welcome, but even the abuser, even the oppressor, even the racist, even the person who's personally mean to you, that's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> what, what do you do with that? See, here's the thing. We don't think this way, I think, but I think the apostles were wrestling with this every parable that Jesus told. They're wrestling with this idea of, the, we love this mercy, we love what you're telling us, but God, we know that the good fish are going to poison the bad fish. We know that the weeds won't make good bread. We know that injustice corrupts justice and that hatred disrupts the loving community of God. We know there's a flip side to all these messages that you're giving us, which is that if everyone's welcome, then aren't we just letting the, the, the bad fish get away with it? Aren't we just letting the injustice come in and corrupt the justice that should be in our community? How can you say we shouldn't weed when there's a danger in not doing that? When that means, I get it, God, you want us to be careful, but aren't there bad people? You know what? In every parable, Jesus acknowledges bad people. You get that, right? <laughs> he said the enemy sowed the weeds because the weeds are of the enemy. He uses the term bad for the bad fish. So there's this troubling tension that the apostles, I think, have been feeling. And the reason that it troubles them more than us is because in their history, because in their tradition, in their, in their, as they've learned about God, one thing that has always been with them has been the justice of God. But the justice of God has, and they understood this, meant the judgment of God. And they have known throughout their history, they've seen the judgment of God. And they've even seen it perhaps more than anywhere else on themselves. And yet they had come to the understanding that when God judged them as Israelites, it was okay because his judgments were right and good. And it meant that not only would he judge them, but it meant that he would also judge others on behalf of them. See, the Old Testament, let me be clear about this. The Old Testament is filled with stories of God's grace and mercy. If you've been under the impression it's not, that really only comes from people who haven't read it. There are books of the Old Testament which are so filled with the grace and mercy of God, they're astounding. The book of Hosea is unbelievably weird in the grace of God. The book of Ruth tells us about the mercy of God in incredible ways. It's just throughout the Old Testament. And they saw that, but they also saw that it was also full of judgment. It was full of God coming in and making judgments. And 
the idea of God's judgment feels to us harsh. It feels mean. It feels at odds with the mercy of God. But think of it this way. We all desire justice for the oppressed. We do. We all desire God's judgment on those few people that we really think deserve it. <laughs> you can think of somebody that you think should get it. See, for the apostles, what this meant, what this parable reminds them of, when he says at the end, the angels will come and they will separate the good fish and the bad fish. They will separate the wheat and the weeds. What it really says to the apostles is, it's all going to be okay. God is going to make everything right. That's what they hear. We hear, and I think it's because of our own fears, because maybe deep down we think we're the bad fish. Maybe deep down we think we're the weeds. And so we feel wrong about that. But what they hear, what the apostles hear is, it's going to be okay. Because through the course of their history, when they were oppressed by the Babylonians and God said judgment will come, what they heard was, it's going to be okay. God's going to rescue us. Here they are. The Romans are oppressing them. What they hear is, it's going to be okay. God's going to rescue us. For them, the reminder of the judgment at the end is encouraging. It means that things will be set right at the end. But I've shared all that. And yet, if you're still feeling uncomfortable, if you still wrestle with the idea of judgment, of a God who can be wrathful and judge people at all, if you still feel tension about that, if you're still wrestling with that, if you're trying to thread the needle between these old ideas of judgment and these new ideas of mercy that we've been seeing in the parables, then I have done my job really well today. Because I think that's exactly what the apostles were feeling, but from the other side. <laughs> I think they were hearing the stories of mercy and seeing it as God was not going to be good and just anymore. And so God is encouraging them, no, I'm, I'm still going to be just. I'm still going to make it right. But it's that tension. It's that threading the needle between the old ideas and the new ideas which we're wrestling with and which they were wrestling with. And I think we can see this as we go on. Let's press forward because it's going to lead us into the second parable, but it starts with a question from Jesus. He simply says this. He says, have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Okay, I think we're justified in questioning the authenticity of their answer, first of all, <laughs> right? I don't think they're trying to lie, but we know that a lot of times they say yes, and then in the next breath they show us no. I think Jesus knows that too. <laughs> but for a moment, let's leave that as it is. This is what they said. They said yes. Let's recognize two things. First, just an encouragement. They have this huge advantage. The crowds that he's been speaking to, they're all gone home. They don't get to walk with him through this. They could, but they haven't chosen to. They don't get to dig deeply with him on these things because they've gone home. They're not there, but for the apostles, they say, yes, we understand, but even if they don't, guess what? They get a lot of time to learn. <laughs> they're going to be able to keep going, and so do we. So if you say to this question, have you understood all these things? And you say, not really. I say, guess what? We're in this for life. God's going to keep teaching us. If this tension is hard to thread for you, that's okay. We're going to get there. 
But here's the other thing. I actually think Jesus knows that even if they say yes, and even if they have sort of understood all these parables, he anticipates that what this means is that they're still struggling, that they are, just as you are, trying to incorporate these new ideas with these old ideas of the kingdom, and that leads Jesus to give one more parable. Because if they're struggling, what does he want them to do? He wants them to struggle. (laughs) He wants them to wrestle with it. He wants them to keep thinking it through, but he wants to give them a framework to help them do that. So he gives them one more parable. It is so short. It is literally one verse, and it's easy to miss. You go to commentaries on the parables of Matthew 13, and this one sometimes doesn't even show up. And yet it is a parable. It is a story that is there to provoke, to make them think about everything they've just heard. He says, have you understood all these things? And they say, yes. And he says, therefore, he begins this parable. In other words, if you really understand these things, then know this. And this is what he says. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. First thing he does, he says, teacher of the law. Now, I think he's directing that to the apostles. They might not think of themselves as teachers of the law, but they, they are. They're people, they're, they're Jews. They know the Old Testament. They're about to teach the church. They're going to be the people that build the church. God's going to work through them to inform everything we read. All the doctrines we understand, they come from the apostles' teaching. Jesus knows this is who they are. But he also sees them and he says to them, I know you're straddling this. You understand the law and your disciples in the kingdom of heaven. So he says to them as a teacher, you need to understand something about both of those. You need to have the right perspective on the law and the kingdom of heaven. But even if he's not talking to them, even if he's just saying to them, there's going to be some rabbi, there's going to be some rabbis and some Pharisees, because we know that's true too, who are going to become disciples of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what I'm talking about them. I think he's talking to the apostles, but whoever he's talking about, the message is the same. He says this, Those teachers of the law who have become disciples of the kingdom are in a unique position. They understand the Jewish law and their way of understanding God, and they also have these new understandings that Jesus is bringing. So they're right at that point of tension that the apostles are wrestling with. You understand the the, the God of justice, and you understand the God of incredible love and mercy, and you're both. And what does he say about them? He says, well... They're like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old treasures. Let's finish that sentence and make sure we understand. He's not saying new treasures as well as old nonsense. (laughs) New treasures as well as old garbage. He's saying those of you who understand both of these, you understand there are new treasures. I am sharing some radical new things about the kingdom of heaven. There's an inclusivity in the kingdom of heaven that the Jews did not understand from the law. But he says, you can understand the treasures of the old and the treasures of the new, and that is what you should be teaching the church. So what is he saying? Remember how we talked about emptying your cup at the beginning? You could put it this way. He's not saying they have to empty their cup entirely, that they have to forget everything they've learned about God and only see good things in the new pictures of Jesus, because that would be weird. He's not saying they must preserve the content of their cup entirely either and dismiss the radical notions of Jesus because that would be a shame. No, he says they have to guard both as treasures, new and old. 
And I think there's a couple of implications for us because I think we also have a hard time grabbing on to the new and the old. And so here's the implications of the storehouse for us as I see them. So here's the thing. Here's the reality. Let's just, let's just talk people for a second. Within this group, this inclusive group of Facebook and Zoom and here in this room, we know this to be true. For everybody in this group, some of us have a fondness for change. Some of us like change. Some of us are always pushing the envelope. And some of us are always sealing the envelope. We like tradition. We like the status quo. We're not as happy about change. Some of us like the traditions that we've grown up with. They seem to us solid and dependable, and we can count on them. And some of us like change, and that feels good and new and fresh. But what's interesting is that our particular proclivity, our particular fondness of change or tradition makes us see one of the other as more of a treasure. As someone who loves sort of pioneering and being on the forefront, I tend to see new ideas as more precious than old stodgy traditions. But I know people who understand traditions and they see them as treasures we need to preserve from radical ideas that are sometimes just wrong. And what I want you to remember is that regardless of whether you're someone who loves change or likes the status quo, something isn't more of a treasure simply based on whether it's new or old. In the storeroom, there's both. There's new treasures and there's old treasures. And what I want us to remember is that truth is indeed more important than tradition. We should never simply hang on to tradition because it's tradition. Truth is more important. That's what Jesus says to the apostles and the Pharisees all the time. I'm telling you things that are true, and I don't care that your tradition is wrong about this. This is true. But you know what else is also true? Truth is more important than change. Change for the sake of change is nothing. Change for the sake of change is fickleness. Change for the sake of change is seeking a thrill. Truth is more important than either tradition or change. G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. He just has a real way with words, and this is one of my favorite quotes. I don't think I've ever used it in church, but I've shared it on Facebook a lot of times, speaking of Facebook. Uh, but I'm going to share it here in church tonight because I think it's relevant, and it's one of my favorite things. When you think about the people who are sort of traditionalists and the people who are, want to change things. I mean, even think about this, our politics, right? We, we literally label our politics by whether you're conservative and you like the status quo or you're progressive and you want to change things. And the progressives tend to think the conservatives are wrong because they, they like the status quo and the progressives say some of the status quo is wrong. And the conservatives say, yeah, but some of the status quo is right and you guys are wrong to change it. And we have this argument because some of us love what's new and some of us don't. Well, here's what G.K. Chesterton says, says about all this. He says, I believe what really happens in history is this. The old man is always wrong. And the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. The practical form it takes is this. That while the old man might stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. <laughs> I think G.K. Chesterton's on to something. I think he recognized that the person who's preserving the old may be wrong, and the person who's pushing for the new may also be wrong. But Jesus is giving us a more positive approach. <laughs> he says, within the storeroom, there's old treasures and there's new treasures. And what does that mean for us? 
It means we have to be careful of pet preferences and teachings. I think we need to recognize that what really happens to us is that we like certain things and we don't like certain things. And if the things we don't like are old, then we decide we don't like the old. <laughs> and if the things we don't like are new, then we decide we don't like the new. But all we're doing is clinging to certain preferences and teachings. It is a truth. It is a reality of the church that if you look through church history, what you discover is not that the church has always been really good at discovering what's really important in every culture, but instead they really tend to follow the customs, ideas, and preferences of the culture they're in. Think about it this way. Here's, let me share this, because this has been so stark to me, and maybe you'll be able to relate to what I'm about to say. Some of you may actually be on one side or the other of this. I think it's really unusual and weird. I think it is oddly, I think it's strange that it's really hard to find someone today, not impossible, but it's kind of hard to find at least large groups of people today who acknowledge the obvious point that scripture speaks frequently and emphatically about both sexual sin and social justice. What's weird is that there's a whole group of people in the church who emphasize sexual sin and de-emphasize social justice. They're like, well, he clearly says, don't commit these sexual sins, but social justice is not that big a deal in scripture. Guess what? They're wrong. It's on a lot of pages. But you know what's equally weird? There's believers on the other side doing precisely the opposite, saying God doesn't care about your personal sexual life. God doesn't talk about sexual sin in Scripture. What he really talks about is social justice. And what's strange about this is that if you just read the Scripture without your pet preferences and proclivities, what you discover is God seems to care about both a great deal. Why is it that we, we've split it that way? There's nothing inherent in social justice or an understanding of sexual sin that makes you deny one or the other. It's just that we have a tradition in America of standing strongly against sexual sin and not as strongly against social justice. So those who are pushing for the news see social justice as important and sexual sin is not. And those pushing for the tradition see sexual sin as important and social justice is not. And I think like G.K. Chesterton would say, they're both wrong. The reality is both are important. And we would be able to see that if we don't get caught up in our own pet preferences. The teachings we think personally are more important. I want to say this one really clearly too. This is something I think we struggle with. There's a lot of Christians deconstructing, right? And I, I'm totally cool with that. I actually think deconstructing is really healthy. I think that the, the American church has added a lot of things to the gospel that need to be separated. We need to make, take the time to do that. And that's painful, but I think it's helpful. But in the process of deconstructing, one of the things that a lot of people wrestle with is how the, the God of the New Testament is so different from the God of the Old Testament. And one of the ways we deal with that is simply to say what Jesus is preaching is a different God. But let's be as clear as we can. You may not like the God of the Old Testament. You may think the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is different. Leave that aside for a moment. What you have to understand, if you're honest, is that if you're not, if you're, is that you are not following Jesus' teaching if you see the Jewish Old Testament God is different from the one we serve because Jesus clearly did not see them differently. Jesus very clearly felt that the God of the Old Testament was the exact same God 
that was laying down his life for all the apostles. They're not different gods. And so you may have to wrestle with that tension, and that's good, and I understand it. But you have to understand that Jesus, if it's Jesus you want to follow, well, then you need to understand that he said that the God of the Old Testament is the God with whom he is one. Somehow in Jesus teaching the old law and the new parables coexist, he's teaching that, that the, he's not revealing a dysfunctional, disconnected God, but he's revealing a fuller, more complete picture of God, right? If you only hold the Old Testament, there's things you miss. But Jesus would say, if you only hold to the new, there's things you miss. And by saying there's old and new treasures in the storehouse, he's saying that you guys, you apostles, you have this unique position to draw it all together, to bring out the new and the old storehouses. And, and let me say this. I think that in a lot of ways that, that it is true. The American church, we wrestle with that. We think the Old Testament God is clearly different from the New Testament God. And, and I know you can point to verses and we can have that argument another time. But let me just say this. The position we're in today, I blame myself partly for this. And by myself, I mean all the pastors and teachers of the last several decades. Because someone have a physical, non-digital Bible with them for a moment? Do you have one, Pam? I know, I had a feeling. <laughs> so here's a, here's a Bible, right? Yeah, let me do this quickly here. It's okay, I'm not going to mess anything up, I promise. All right. Oh, your Bible's even better for my, my, my point here. Okay. Here's what I want you to see. That's the Old Testament, okay? That's the new. Is it interesting to you, it's interesting to me, that this is what evangelical pastors have ignored for the last several decades. <laughs> and this is what we taught. It's not proportional. And by the way, that's all I need. And by the way, <laughs> I'm not saying that it should be proportional. I'm not saying that we should teach the same amount of, of the size of the New Testament compared to the Old, because the New Testament does have some radical ideas and it's the most explanatory. And part of the reasons it's shorter is because everybody's, everything's put in propositions. This is true, this is true, this is true. That relates really well to us as Americans. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it, and it gives us some clarity that the Old Testament doesn't always give. So I'm not arguing that we should teach them the same amount, but the differential is really large, is what surprises me. And, and in fact, it's so large, I have almost, I have this sneaky feeling which is almost a certainty based upon conversations for 30 years that there are a lot of pastors who have worked their way through the New Testament many times and have never read the book of Leviticus all the way through. And these are the teachers. And if we haven't done it, how can we expect you to have done it? So some of it is us. We've taught this kind of lopsided approach. I'm not opposed to topical teaching, by the way, not even a little bit. I think topical teaching has its place. In fact, Jesus taught almost exclusively topically. <laughs> he didn't go back to the Old Testament and teach verse by verse. So I have no problem with that. But I think what we do is we teach them as separate things. Even when we do teach the Old Testament and the New, we teach it this way. When we teach the New Testament, we teach the gospel. And when we teach the Old Testament, we teach morality lessons. 
When we teach the New Testament, we are amazed and we're in awe of God and we learn about who he is. And when we teach the Old Testament, we teach morality lessons. When we teach the New Testament, we teach the grace of God and how you're saved not by your works, but by grace. And when we teach the Old Testament, we teach morality lessons. And the reason I think we do that is because that's an easy way to deal with difficult passages in the Old Testament. <laughs> but it does lead us to the conclusion they're different things. And that the God of the Old Testament is at best a lecturer who teaches morality lessons. It's left an entire generation believing that the God of the Old Testament taught morality while the God of the New wants to be with you. But if you really read the Old Testament, you learn that he says, I am with you always more often than he does in the New Testament. The reality is also that the style and genre and ideas of the Old Testament are foreign to a lot of us as teachers. And so we spend less time there because we're uncomfortable with it. And it's so long. And some of it is so boring. But you know what else? I also blame you for this. And when I say you, I mean every congregational member I've ever taught. I mean the people of God in the church. Because the difficulty is we want short, soundbite answers to our questions. For example, people will come to me and they will ask how God can justify what appears to be genocide in Scripture. That is a great question. They'll ask me how, God, how I can justify and how God can justify things like slavery or the oppression of women in Scripture. And that is a great question. But what happens is people ask this in moments when they clearly expect an answer that they can digest in moments. And when I begin to go into an explanation to invite them to sit with the culture that they're talking about, to develop a Jewish mindset, to understand what they're reading, to see that God isn't in fact justifying none of those things, but it will take time for you to see that and see with the lens that makes that clear. When I ask you to learn to read the Old Testament as you do the New with the presumption in favor of God's character, when I ask you to read with the desire to truly understand and meet God as he is rather than, I, than you want him to be, I see your eyes start to glaze over. Because all you wanted to know is how God justifies genocide. <laughs> I feel the impatience of your feet to move somewhere else. I feel the mind snap close in front of me. For 13 years, I've been preaching chronologically through the Bible on Monday nights. It started as a small group of us nine years ago. It took us nine years to go through it once. And then I started over again. And some of that group left and some stayed and new people came. And now it's been another four years. For 13 years, we've been preaching every single verse chronologically through scripture. And during those 13 years, I've had numerous people who attended my churches say to me, why don't you ever preach through the Bible? I'm really hungry for that. And I say to them, I understand that. And on Monday nights, we're doing that, but it takes us 13 years. <laughs> And they say, oh, no, I just want you to do it in a couple weeks, <laughs> in a year. Give me a year teaching through the Bible. You know what? I've even had people visit up my Monday night. Some of those people who said, I hunger for that. I even had one person who visited, literally said to me, came up to me. His eyes were wide with amazement. He looked at me and he said these words. He said, you know what? That's amazing. You literally are just preaching the Bible. That's what everybody needs. And I said, yeah, isn't that cool? And he said, yes. And you know how often he came back? Never. 
The reality is what I've learned from doing the chronological study is there's no shortcut to learn the breadth of scripture. I'm not saying you have to come on Monday nights. This is not a course and try to get you to come on Monday nights. There's nothing magic about Monday. There's nothing magic about Monday nights. And a lot of you do come. So this would be the wrong crowd to try to coerce anyway. <laughs> no, there's no magic about Monday nights. What I am saying is that what I've learned is there's no shortcut to learn the breadth of scripture. There just isn't. You know how the Jews learned the breath of scripture? By sitting with it day after day after day from infancy. So that by the time they were 12, many of them had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. I get really proud when I get a whole paragraph of Paul memorized. I'm like, I'm so good. <laughs> and then I remember that Paul had the book of Leviticus memorized. I'm not saying you have to do that. But I'm just saying there's no shortcut for learning the breadth of scripture. And we want shortcuts. If you want to understand how the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are really the same, you have to be willing to spend the time and the tension of it. To learn as the Jews themselves did to get to know God over time. And to wonder at this God who's more complex and more infinitely other and more holy than you can possibly grasp in a lifetime, let alone in sound bites and glimpses of verses in the Old Testament. I find it really encouraging and fascinating that in our studies right now, in our focus groups right now, we have a group going through Job, we have a group going through Nehemiah, and we have a group going through the Minor Prophets. Now, would I be concerned if these groups ignored Galatians and Hebrews and the Gospels? Yes. <laughs> but I'm encouraged that we seem to think there's benefit in the old treasures and the new treasures. I think what people really miss, the really important and encouraging thing people miss when they insist on separating the Old Testament from the New is they miss seeing a God what happens when you do that, when you separate that, is somehow you get this impression in your mind that the God of the Old somehow grew up and became as mature as you to see what you've always known that love and mercy are good and anger and wrath are bad. And you're just relieved that God finally caught up with you. <laughs> but what we miss, and we can't afford to miss, the really beautiful thing that we need to recognize is this. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is so important because what it means is you can count on there not being a new New Testament where God suddenly becomes mean again, right? If he's moody and changeable and he went from being a mean, grumpy, angry God to somehow being a kind and loving God, well, how do you know it's not going to go back again? Because that's how I am. Our God is not in flux like our culture is in flux. He's not changeable and moody as you and I are. He doesn't need to grow up because he's fully and infinitely mature. And the most important thing that I want to communicate tonight is that his love for you did not develop at the cross. It wasn't something he realized one day. Like a a courting suitor who suddenly realizes, like, like all those romantic comedies where suddenly someone realizes the person they hated is actually the person they love. That's not what happened. God didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I guess they're okay after all. There wasn't a meet cute that happened here. This was just God 
always loved you. He created you fully loved as his treasure, already priceless enough to him to give everything for. And that affection for you has never and will never waver. It will never change. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what the apostles were encouraged by in the parable of the judgment is that the good God they believed, they saw that as good. And we would too, if we thought right about it. The good God that judged injustice and made things right, they were relieved to hear from Jesus that with all his love, which is real, and all his precious care for them and his mercy and is inviting everybody, even the worst, to be part of his kingdom, that he was still the same good God they'd always known. But now he's somehow they see that he's even better than they thought. And this has been the course of my life, that God shows me he's good, and tomorrow I realize that that word is bigger than I thought, that he's even better than I thought. But he doesn't get better. He's not like fine wine. He is good, and he's always good. And that's, I think, the last point that we want to make in our series. So number one, everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. Number two, everyone is wanted, but not everyone wants it. Number three, weeding is not your job. Number four, God loves to work through the small, even the despised things. Number five, the king thinks you are worth everything. All of that is true. None of that changes. None of this last parable affects any of that one iota. That is still all completely true. But then God wants to remind us that the king of heaven is unchangeably good. No matter what happens, yesterday, today, tomorrow, a thousand years from now, a million years from now, the king of heaven is still unchangeably good. And that's why the kingdom of heaven will be unchangeably good. To add words to this at this point would just be me acknowledging that I can't say it well enough to make it stick yet in my head. So I wonder if it will with you. So I'm not going to do that, even though those were more words. <laughs> and I did acknowledge that. <laughs> what I'm going to do is leave it here and just say to you, if you still feel attention, if you're like, yeah, but that's great. But as you wrestle with whatever you wrestle with, these are things we know about the kingdom of heaven. These are things we count on. And one of them is that the king of heaven is unchangeably good. Don't despise the old things that show the goodness of God. Don't despise the new things that reveal that he's even better than you thought. Because we are in this position where we can grasp both. And we have eternity to walk through it with Jesus to understand that better. And I know that of all things, there's nowhere else the apostles wanted to be because they stayed with him for three long, hard years. But somehow, they decided he was good enough to hang out with. Let's pray. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, 
underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.